Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. Seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. This is Chris Chimes, and along with Ben Baldanza, I want to welcome you to another edition of our podcast. Hey, Chris. I hope everyone has had a good week. We've got a lot of news to get to this week, so Chris, let's start up the engines. Well, when all else fails, you talk about the weather, right, Ben? Uh, Unfortunately, we don't need an excuse to talk about the weather, as this has been a lousy week for the aviation system. Along with the record cold in Texas and the Southwest and the related infrastructure damage, we saw major snow in the Midwest, and there was one day that the National Weather Service reported that 70% of the continental U.S. had snow on the ground. On Friday, February 19th, the U.S. recorded 3,100 flight delays, more than half of the global flight delays of 6,109, according to FlightAware. On that same day, there were 1,200 flight cancellations in the U.S., which was a vast improvement from two days before when there were more than 2,900 flights that were canceled in the U.S., Ben, uh, any color commentary about what's been going on behind the scenes? I don't know if you talked to any of your former colleagues or friends in the business, but anything unusual, interesting to share with us? Well, I think two things, Chris. One is that sticking on the weather for a minute. The other thing weather causes, in addition to lots of flight cancellations, is usually an increase in ground damage of airplanes, too. Ramps get icy just like roads do. And so you see tugs hitting airplanes or planes skidding as they move toward gates and maybe a jet bridge damaged. So it'll be interesting to see whether with this really cold weather we're seeing in so many places, once we start getting reportings of ground damage, whether we see a corresponding increase you know, there as a result of weather also, because that's another thing that happens, I think. On the non-weather side, I think what most people in the industry are probably thinking about is the big new stimulus bill and whether or not it is formally going to pass yet and whether $14 billion is going to come to airlines. And so everybody employed in the industry stays employed for another round. And the combination of that round plus relatively encouraging news on the virus Like we said last week, Anthony Fauci saying we'll be out of the woods by April. And now a report from Johns Hopkins that said the virus could be almost effectively over by the end of April. Now, I don't know if either of those things are right, but if they are and this stimulus carries employees through that period, we could be, you know, very optimistically looking at maybe a, a positive summer for travel and industry employment somewhat stable again. I realize that's very optimistic here in February, but when you look at all the signs, that at least looks like it's a possibility. Well, I don't I don't think you planned that, Ben, but that was a nice segue to my next question and a news item that um, I don't know if you saw that Barron story from a few days ago. They often have very insightful coverage, but they're just so strict uh, with their paywall that it's difficult to read their 
stuff without a subscription. But the headline was, rising fuel prices are normally bad news for airline stocks. Why is this time different? And then the piece walks us through the rise in spot jet fuel prices from a buck 13 in November to as high as a dollar 68 in February. And yet at the same time, the NICE airline index has surged about 70% between November and now. So analysts attribute this bullishness to the prospects of the COVID vaccine, like you pointed out, and a hopeful rebound by year's end. So I want you to put on your best Goldilocks voice, Ben. Is this too hot or too cold or just about right with regard to fuel prices and stock prices and where things are headed? Wow. Well, I'm not sure what Goldilocks actually sounded like, but uh, I'll say it's probably just about right. You know, airlines have done a good job reacting to volatile fuel in the sense of they've been able to manage capacity and pricing closer over the last number of years to match fuel. So an increase, a temporary or near-term rise in fuel prices isn't sort of the death knell or real worry for investors in industry in the industry right now. Much, much larger is this issue of are people willing to travel and can they travel and will states open up again? So positive news about the vaccine, which we've had in the last week, will dwarf, I think, energy kind of prices unless we're talking about some all of a sudden, all the world's oil dries up overnight, right? <laughs> but, right. It's, um, but, but barring that, I think fuel is sort of a, an afterthought. I, I mean, of course, that's not true in the airline's economics. But if you're an investor, you're much more worried about demand coming back than you are some changes in fuel price, especially when the industry's got, gotten better about dealing with that through both pricing and capacity changes. Yeah, and at least here in Texas this past week, I think airlines were the only one who could get fuel and had energy all week. So I think it's something close to watch, but clearly the markets are responding to the progress we're making on the vaccine and really the expectations that travel will be one of those things that rebounds pretty quickly. Well, that's right. And there certainly was at least one very celebrated flight to Cancun that happened from Dallas, right? (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. But first, we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports across the U.S., moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com slash airlines. So, Chris, tucked away in a few aviation publications, there was a story last week about Sikorsky and FedEx beginning a series of secret, and the stories use the word secret, single pilot tests for cargo aircraft. These specifically involved an ATR-42 on some flights in Connecticut. I've been looking for any follow-up chatter about this, but so far I haven't seen anything. Well, as Ted Cruz knows, there are no secrets. And as Sikorsky and FedEx know, if this was supposed to be a secret, it's not anymore. There's been talk of self-flying aircraft for a number of years, just like self-driving cars. I know you know that, Ben. I know a lot of our listeners and certainly our, our, our aviators follow this. So this isn't all that surprising. We've got drones delivering packages. and So in certain instances, single pilot aircraft might make sense for certain cargo deliveries. 
I know that Alpa knows very well that technology can continue to improve safety in the cockpit. So there's value in these efforts to move forward, but technology alone can't improve safety, just as we saw with the 737 MAX. So overall, I think it's something to watch, even with all the furloughs of the last uh, eight or 10 months. Every analysis I read says there's still a significant pilot shortage for many years to come. So I guess it's interesting, but if I'm a pilot or a would-be pilot, I wouldn't find this all, all that alarming. I agree with you, Chris. You know, it, it wouldn't surprise me if commercial airline manufacturers are looking at technologies of even commercial planes with passengers that could fly with a single pilot. But that's different than saying planes may have only a single pilot at some point, right? I could see, I mean, if you go back in time, you remember older airplanes like the 727 and and older planes had three people in the cockpit, two pilots and one they called a flight engineer who worked out a lot of the mathematical problems that today computers do for airplanes. I could see the world going sort of effectively back that way, or maybe you still have two people in the cabin. One is the trained aviator who understands, you know, all the way to fly, who can land the plane in the Hudson when he has to, right, and do the things that we expect pilots to do in emergencies and such. And then maybe another person who knows enough, but is also really an expert on all the systems of the plane and all the computers on the plane and knows the way all the you know, not just MCAS and the 737 MAX, but every system on the plane works. And so maybe it's more of a division of duties in the future. But I find it hard to believe, certainly in our lifetime and maybe even my son's lifetime, that passengers will be getting on a plane with fewer than two people in the cockpit, even though what they do may change over time. Does that sound crazy? No. We all benefit from technology, like I was saying. None of us have been to the moon, but we've certainly benefited from the NASA expeditions to the moon in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And there are probably things in our cars right now that are the product of some of the the research on self-driving cars. So again, technology and knowledge always benefits safety. And so that's why I'm kind of nonplussed. And I think probably that's why the reaction from a lot of other people is of interest, but not alarmed because I think there's still a long way to go and many more upsides to just getting better tools and technology. And this is Airlines Confidential. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's Seabury Capital, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y Capital.com. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at AirlinesConfidential.com. Ben, it's time for some listener questions, and our first one is from Amy in the UK. 
Hey guys, years ago when I began my aviation career, I was in the cabin of Jet 2 in the UK. At the time, we had a fleet which included 737-300QC aircraft, which flew from the UK to the Bucket and Spade resorts in Spain during the day, before the seats were all removed at night, and it was loaded with freight and mail. I was always amazed that so few airlines had aircraft like this, and so few aircraft were produced. Why do you think that is? And would this be a simple way to increase fleet utilization? Loving the show and still loving the industry, even though these are pretty tough times. Ben? Well, the airplane that Amy is talking about, the QC, stands for quick change. I'm sure many of our listeners know that. And it's what's also known as a combi aircraft, a plane that can remove the seats relatively quickly and carry cargo. When I worked at Taka Airlines back in the late 1990s, they had a 737 QC, probably not unlike the one at Jet 2. And that plane just got beat to heck. (laughs) You know, what would happen is, while theoretically it's a great idea, remove the seats, add cargo, especially to increase daily utilization, fly people during the day, cargo at night. The idea is just great. But there's a couple challenges with it. The plane is heavier. Sometimes they have to have a cargo door installed in them. And that makes the plane heavier even for passenger operations. And the removal of the seats and adding of the cargo back and forth over time tends to scuff things up tends to just make it really much more difficult. So the practical reality and the reason I don't think a lot of airlines use these airplanes and there weren't that many made is that they're not that easy to deal with. Now, if you were going to fly passengers six months out of the year and fly cargo six months out of the year, then it probably would work a lot better because you'd be making the change you know, twice in a year rather than daily or something like that. Taka's QC was the toughest plane to fly in the sense that if you were on it as a passenger and you walked on that plane, you it just didn't look like the other airplanes in the Taka fleet. You knew something was wrong. And it was because they tried to take the quick change idea to reality and did just that. They flew passengers during the day and cargo at night. Maybe that's what Jet 2 did. I think that's just too complicated for most airlines to deal with. It makes the plane heavier, so it burns a lot more fuel. When it comes to airlines, complications equals costs. (laughs) And so it ends up being a more expensive airplane. So while it's kind of a really good idea, especially to increase utilization, Amy, I just think that um, it's really too tough for airlines to deal with the kind of airplane. Chris, have you ever been involved in a QC operation or do you know anything, you know, practical? I have not been, but as you were talking, what was blinking lights to me was the term cattle car. So literally it's uh, (laughs) probably gives new meaning to what a cattle car airline could be. But I agree with you. It's just a complicated aspect of operations that probably the the juice isn't worth the squeeze as it relates to that marginal utilization and how it might be used differently. So uh, I, I kind of have the same reaction as you did, Ben. Uh, ben, I got another question from you, and this is from Kyle in Minneapolis. And I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I think this is the same Kyle 
that was quoted in some of the Ted Cruz coverage over the last few days where he uh, got some information about the the uh, altered return flight that was of great interest in the media coverage. Guys, I was reading an article on simpleflying.com that cited industry sources that an airline will often get an aircraft for up to 50% off quote list price. Is there even a list price? Ben, would you like to comment? Ben, I'll turn it over <laughs> yes, to you. Yes, I would. And thank you, Kyle, for this question. Yeah, airplanes have list prices, just like cars have list prices. I mean, think about it. If somebody calls Airbus or Boeing and says, I would like to buy an A320 or a 737, and they might say, well, who are you? And you just say, I'm some rich shake and you know, I want to configure it for my family and I have a pilot who will fly it around for me. They would want to sell you that plane, but they can't just sort of make up a price, right? What they'll quote that person is the list price for that plane, which is usually the price that has two reasons. One, it's the, it's the price if you buy one of them. <laughs> and, and it's the and it's the price from which the airlines can negotiate discounts generally for volume and and longer term commitments so it's no secret that the things that affect on the price an airline pays for its airplanes there are a couple things that affect it one how many planes do they buy you get them cheaper if you buy them by the hundred than if you buy them by the dozen just like most things you buy, probably. Number two, when do you buy? Ryanair is an airline that has been particularly successful in buying planes when almost nobody else is. In fact, they recently placed a big order for the 737 MAX, one of the first sort of when once the MAX came back into service. That's an example of what they do. And so when you buy in terms of how many other people are buying and when the manufacturer is looking at their production, that affects the price. And the last thing, so it's how many you buy, when you buy, and the last thing is just like any negotiation, where is the leverage and how well do you negotiate? So if you're buying narrow body A320s, but you also are going to be placing a wide body order at some point, Airbus might be more interested in getting you into their space, into their ecosystem, so that when you buy the wide body, you'll look at the A350 or something instead of the 787, right? Or, or something like that. So there are sort of strategic things too that go into the negotiation. So the fact is there are airlines in the world that fly the same planes that pay different things for the planes. And it usually comes down to how many they buy, when they bought, and how well they negotiated in terms of, you know, dealing with the leverage they could. So I think this is a real interesting part of the business, Chris, and it drives real interesting competitive advantages too, because if you're competing against someone, another airline, flying the same plane as you and they're paying four or five million dollars per plane less than you are, it's hard for you to cover that difference in other things you do. And so, you know, it, it gives small airlines generally a, a tougher time because they usually can't buy and don't necessarily have the balance sheet strength than bigger, more well-established airlines. 
a lot in this question, actually. So, Ben, if you're buying an airplane, it's kind of like, uh, I got a guy. So, uh, if, uh, <laughs> depend, depending on depending on the on your contacts and your leverage, you might get a better deal than than not. But that's to be expected. That's right, Chris. Well, you're listening to Airlines Confidential. Finer wine is next. But first, we want to thank Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotel Connections is a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. Chris, I'm going to toss this finer wine to you. It's from Fatima in New York. Cutter's customer service team was terrible at the Doha airport. My flight was delayed for 14 hours, and I was with my two-year-old sick child. The staff refused to accommodate me and lied and stated there were no rooms available at the adjacent airport hotel for stay, and they would also not accommodate me in one of the lounges. They advised me to sit on the benches for 14 hours. When I walked into the hotel just to ask them if they had an availability, they were able to give me a room right away. So my question is why they lied to me so they didn't have to accommodate me. When I was boarding, I spoke to the Cutter agents and they promised to compensate me for the hotel fare. Yet when I reached out to them via email, they completely denied that an offer was made. Finer wine, Chris. I'm going to give uh, Fatima a fine, Ben. Um, it sounds like she had a legitimate complaint. The original bad information about no hotel room being available could have been innocent enough, whether it be the hotel hadn't updated their availability or the agent simply didn't know, but they were embarrassed to say they, they didn't know. She doesn't provide all the details that I'd want to have to assess the complaint fully and make a decision, but I think this is a classic case of documenting the experience you know, who told you that the airline would reimburse you? Did you get a name? Did you get their title? Did you get what gate they were working at? Just some more precise information that could improve your chances. Uh, I'm sure in the middle of traveling with a two-year-old who was sick on a long international flight, that that was the least of her priorities in, in doing that. But clearly that would have helped here. Uh, she said she was from New York. Uh, Cutter has a New York office, so I would certainly follow up again. But it sounds like she's got a legitimate complaint. I agree with you on that one, Chris. And this complaint also made me think about of another topic that maybe we should, you know, hold the bigger discussion for a future show. But I want to get your, you know, quick thoughts here, which is what should the industry do about sick passengers? You know, today, if it, well, let me say in a pre-COVID world, if you went up to a gate and said, I have tuberculosis and I am highly contagious and I don't want to get on this plane, I'd like to fly in a few days. They'd say, fine, that's going to be this big change fee and the flights at that point are pretty full, so you owe me an extra couple thousand dollars, right? <laughs> and, uh, and so... And so you'd probably say, well, forget it then. I'll just get out of the airplane, right? And now in this COVID world now, we're more sensitive to the fact that we don't really want sick people on the airplanes. And so what is your 
intuition, Chris, about what the airline's role is in sort of judging whether someone's well enough to get on the airplane. And I know that wasn't Fatima's question, but when she said her kid was sick, it made me think about this because we're all about sickness and traveling now, right? Yeah. I mean, where's the line going to be? I mean, anybody can get a doctor's note, but clearly public health and travel are commingled in a way that they never were before. They, They were connected, but not in this way. And so... I think probably airlines are much more sensitive to it. They're grappling with kind of how to proceed with some of these issues. I have a feeling it's going to be a long time before people get comfortable with passengers around them coughing or sneezing. So you're right that it's probably a topic that's being discussed for a longer term basis. I saw recently that Delta hired a chief health officer for the first time. So airlines have always had medical expertise and resources. But I think uh, you're starting to see more of the major carriers, at least very clearly looking at the intersection between public health and their operations. And certainly it's a worker safety issue, as well as an economic and passenger safety issue. So it's something that uh, I think we're all going to have to deal with moving forward. You know, I think that's right, Chris. And uh, in the many ways that COVID is changing our world and changing you know, the way we're going to think about things going forward. I think this is one issue, sort of how do you deal with sick passengers who want to board planes that's going to become an issue in this industry over the next year or so. We'll have to see if it does or whether it just sort of goes away. We'll have to see. So, Chris, that's a wrap for this week's show. I want to close with a shout out to the crew of the United Airplane from Denver to Honolulu that had the engine failure that dropped a piece of the engine in someone's yard. <laughs> and uh, I wanted the shout out to be to the crew and the passengers on that flight. The crew obviously did a terrific job safely returning that plane to the Denver airport and, you know, allowing everybody to hopefully board another plane to Honolulu, although I'm guessing some of them maybe decided not to do that. We'll see. And um, doing a great job following their training, staying calm, That's really why pilots get paid a lot of money, not to do the normal stuff, but to do stuff like this. And so shout out to them, but also to the passengers. Because, you know, Chris, you could fly your whole life regularly, like you and I probably have, and never experience something like this. And that's a really good thing. That's a testament to how safe this industry is. So for the passengers who had to live through that and made it through, I'm sure it was a very harrowing experience for them. And After a couple of weeks, it's going to become a real good story for them to tell. But a shout out to everyone involved in that flight, that everyone got off safely and a damage like that could happen to the airplane and some vacations delayed a little, but beyond that, no real, no real hurt. That's a very worthy shout out, Ben. Mine is in that same vein. Really a shout out to all the aviators this past week for the really remarkable job maneuvering through the weather across the country. You've got it tough enough right now with COVID, but this weather intensity added to the tension of air travel, and it was another stellar performance across the system, both in the cockpit and in the cabin, keeping people calm and keeping them comfortable. So a really outstanding job. Well, until next week, I'm Ben Baldanza. And I'm Chris Chimes. Thanks for joining us on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.